Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Eurotrip, the contest and me. Sad news I'm afraid because it is the final episode of the series. But to sort of counter that sadness, we thought we'd bring it to you even earlier than normal. It's Friday, it's not a Wednesday, you haven't had to wait a week for a brand new episode. So hopefully that puts a smile on your face even though it is the final episode of the series. I'm James, joined as ever by the wonderful Rob Lilly. Hello. Yeah, we promised you that we would have the contest and me wrapped up by the end of September. So we are, for once, sticking to our word. This is your second episode of the contest and me this week. The final episode of the contest and me of the series. We will be getting into Eurovision 2023 and full steam ahead to whether it's Liverpool or Glasgow on the podcast in a few weeks time. But before all that, James, who is the guest that we have saved till last? It is the one and only Carrie Grant. She has done absolutely everything and anything when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest. She has performed on the stage. She's been head of the jury, uh, sending out the vote. She's also presented the vote on screen. She's been a, a judge on the national final. Have I missed something? I'm sure there must be something else. She's done absolutely everything, hasn't she, Rob? She definitely has. I think she's taken on the role of vocal coach for some of our Eurovision acts as well in the past as well. But given how many different roles she's had involved in Eurovision that, James, you've just gone through there, so many stories about so many different elements of the contest. So as you can tell, loads of great stuff to come on this episode of the Eurotrips, The Contest and Me. 
Yeah, get the tissues ready, everyone. Didn't think I'd be saying that this week, did you? (laughs) It is very upsetting. I'm sure there are some tears in your eyes because this is the final episode of The Contest of Me for 2022. And James, what a ride it has been. It has. It's been a longer ride than we expected as well. It was only originally going to be six. And then more people, more great people started to say yes. And we thought, well... What can we do? Let's just continue the series because we love it so much. So a few extra episodes for you. uh, But today is, as we say, the last one. But we've saved a great one to last. Yeah, honestly, so much to look forward to with James chatting to Cary Grant coming up a little bit later on in today's episode. But of course, but two days ago, we brought you the last episode of The Contest in Me. It was so recently, maybe you're listening to this and you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. So make sure you go back and listen to it if you haven't already. Because James, a brilliant conversation you had with the Vixen, star of The Chase, TV quizzer, podcaster, Jenny Ryan. Wow, were you reading her CV directly there? You got that pretty nailed on, I think. Yeah, it was uh, not even released 12 hours ago when uh, we're recording this part of today's episode. Uh, thanks to everyone who's got in touch already. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, of course, we are at Eurotrip Podcast. David Nickel, thanks for getting in touch. Ooh, I'm excited for this one. Absolutely love her. Uh, Callum as well, thank you for getting in touch. He said Jenny played a huge role in destigmatizing I thought I was going to struggle with that word destigmatizing Eurovision music and raising its credibility performing two Eurovision winners on the X Factor celebrity yeah absolutely and Sophie as well said that X Factor story I wasn't expecting that yeah we're not going to tell you about the X Factor story because you're going to have to go back and listen if you haven't heard the X Factor story yet but if you have heard the X Factor story by now what a story eh it was absolutely brilliant so Great insight from Jenny on what Simon Cowell actually thinks of the Eurovision Song Contest as well. So definitely go back and have a listen to that. Yeah, a little bit of a surprise there. When Jenny started to tell me, honestly, my eyebrows were further (laughs) up my forehead than they've ever been before. And you've got quite thin eyebrows. That'd be quite hard to tell for Jenny on the other end of the Zoom call. But uh, (laughs) that's maybe for the best. I don't know. Otherwise, you might have put her off a little bit with your uh, raised eyebrows. This is, of course, the last episode of The Contest in Me for the series. We've already said that. But on social last week, we put a question because, of course, you know we ask every guest the same questions to get their memories of Eurovision. But, James, I know the last question that we ask each week is your favourite question, which is, of course, if that guest could be the executive supervisor and change anything they'd like to about the Eurovision Song Contest, what they would change. Got some really interesting answers, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. I say this to every single guest. You'll probably hear me say it again when I chat to Carrie in about half an hour's time at the end of our conversation that it is my favourite question because it just allows you to be a little bit creative. We all love the Eurovision Song Contest, of course, but I'm sure there's some niggles where you think, hmm, I tell you what, just for a bit of jeopardy, I'd like to change this, that and the other. And you guys have been getting in touch with all of your thoughts about that. Yeah, definitely. So we'll put a poll out on Twitter at your trip podcast. We also asked you the question on Instagram. You know, do you agree with our guests' suggestions for what they'd like to change? So your options were to scrap the pre-recorded vocals on the backing track, to have a shorter grand final, uh, to have a different voting system, or to have a bigger jury. Now, these are all suggestions that have come in from our guests. Well, the winner, by one single percent, was a bigger jury 
So mm. 39 point, yeah, interesting. So 39.7% of you said you'd like a bigger jury. At uh, 38.7% of you said you'd like to scrap the pre-recorded vocals on the backing track. Uh, just under 14% said you'd like a shorter grand final. And then just 8% agreeing with Louise Cantillon, Ireland's junior Eurovision presenter, when she said that she would like a different voting system at Eurovision. And also some great comments going along with some of those responses as well. Uh, Liam tweeted us saying, definitely no pre-recorded backing vocals. If I'm watching someone live, I don't want them to be drowned out by a studio track. Uh, Liam doesn't go as far as mentioning certain performances, which I think we all know maybe <laughs> which ones he may be alluding to. Uh, at Flip Online said, definitely a bigger jury, like 10 times bigger. And then David as well said, I could have voted for a lot of these. I went for the jury. I've always felt five is far too small a pool, and I have doubts as to whether it's fair that they base their votes on a different performance. A very good point made by David, of course, because as we know, the jury vote on the jury final performance, which is the performance on the Friday nights, and of course we vote on the performance we see on the Saturday, which might explain some of the discrepancies in the voting sometimes, but not all the time. <laughs> yeah, and just a quick point on the, the size of the juries. Yeah, there's there's five members of the jury per country. And if I remember rightly, Rob, you may have to correct me or agree that when you spoke to former exec supervisor, Jono Lassand, at um, Christmas last year, I think he gave us a bit of a reason why the juries are so small. I'm not going to say why, in case I am wrong, but you can go and listen back to that episode released just at Christmas last year so almost a year ago go and have a listen to that to see what he said about the size of the juries yeah have a little scroll down wherever you listen to this podcast but in the meantime if you've got any thoughts on that on jenny run on our previous episode of the contest and me or on what you're about to hear then of course get in touch at your trip podcast on twitter and instagram and we are hello at your trip podcast.com on the email Right then, shall we get to the main point of this episode and our conversation with Carrie Grant? Uh, I think I'm right in saying that she is the first performer at Eurovision that we've ever had on the contest. I mean, because everybody else has been a journalist or a commentator or just a huge fan. But this is the first time that anybody on the contest has actually performed at the Eurovision Song Contest. But it's not only that, of course. She's also given out the points in the grand final. She's been... Oh, I listed them before. Now I've forgotten them all. But she's basically done absolutely everything, hasn't she? Yes, she has. She's been a judge on previous BBC selection shows. Like you said, she's been on the jury. We've said that plenty of times by now. But yeah, she also represented the UK as part of the group Sweet Dreams in 1983. Finished sixth, I think, James. Is that right? In the contest in Munich? Absolutely. We'll chat a little bit about that and her reaction and her memories of 1983. We'll chat about what it's like to be the head of the jury. She performed that role back in 2014 when, of course, Conchita won. There'll be a lot of conversation about Conchita. And she'll also tell us about what it's like to give the votes out on TV. So many stories about her connection to the Eurovision Song Contest. And just before we get into that interview, can I please have you saying Conchita again in a Geordie accent? Conchita. <laughs> that's not got you going on a Friday if you're listening on the day of release I don't know what will let that take you into the weekend everyone uh, on that note then let's get to it this is what happened when I sat down with Carrie Grant Carrie Grant welcome to the Eurotrips the contest and me <laughs> hello it's lovely to be here it's great to have you here. We have so, so many things to ask you about. Your connection to the Eurovision Song Contest goes back so many years, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But the first 
part of the conversation, the place I want to begin with is the place we begin with everybody, which is yes. the 2022 contest. It has been a few months, I admit. Oh my gosh. No, it's still fresh. Is we are it? going to be living on this for at least the next 20 years. Come on oh, now. Definitely, it was definitely. fantastic, iconic, amazing, so exciting. Finally, you know, we stopped the naysayers from getting in there again and saying nobody's ever going to vote for us. You know, <laughs> I think I've probably said that, in fact. But um, <laughs> the, yeah, the fact is people did vote for us because it was so damn good. You know, it was great. When we get it right, we get it right. Exactly. You know, we had a conversation earlier in the year when we were looking at the last 25 years for the UK and then Sam Ryder came along this year and it was just oh so different. Do you remember, I don't know, do you remember hearing Sam's song for the first time and thinking this is something different? Do you know what? I actually came to that song, Spaceman, in a way that was really interesting because I I do a lot of radio on Radio London. I'm a presenter, the Saturday Breakfast Show. And I played that song. David and I played it. And I was like, this song is amazing. I love that track by this guy, Sam Ryder. And then I must have been playing it for maybe, I don't know, two or three shows. And somehow it popped out, the piece of information, that he was the Eurovision entrant. I didn't actually realise he was the Eurovision entrant and loved the song. And for me, that was a very pure way of coming about it, you know, because I, I wasn't giving any judgment of whether it was good enough or whether it wasn't good enough, you know, any of that. I just thought, this is a great song. I love this song. Um, so, you know, and I, I suppose that when when it boils down, it really is about the song. And that for me really proved it because I didn't even know it was the Eurovision entry. And I just thought, this is a great song. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because I remember when Sam released the song, it was released as a as a single and we didn't know it was the Eurovision song for maybe a week or two. Ah, and that's, that's probably maybe... why then. That is, thank you for explaining it to me. I was wondering why I hadn't heard that. And maybe maybe that is sort of, maybe that's a good technique. What do you think is, you know, the way of stealth yeah. dropping a Eurovision song without saying it's a Eurovision song to get the vibe of people before you actually give it the Eurovision label? Maybe that's a good idea. Well, I think what it proved was when you take away, in that case, just hearing you say that makes me think perhaps taking away the word Eurovision removed any stigma. Certainly, see, I don't know that it's in the public's minds but I do think at radio whether we would have got to play it do you know what I mean whether it would have been on heavy rotation it was on heavy rotation on our station so clearly the radio stations loved it and of course if the radio stations love it then that's exposure to the public but the public will never get to hear anything if it's not on rotation that's the problem so I, I think that's a really really interesting point that I had just hadn't even thought of James. Yeah, very interesting. Now, uh, quickly, can you remember where you were for Eurovision this year? Did you have a party at home with the rest of the family? What was your Eurovision setup for 2022? Do you remember? I did not have a party. Um, I think because I do very early morning radio on Saturdays, <laughs> I um, I think I was probably asleep by the early evening, but woke up for the scores. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I was like, I've missed most of this now. Uh, I watched some of it on catch up and on, you know, it's just, there was so much stuff on social media, wasn't there as well. But um, yeah, so really it was about championing. I think we were championing on our show for the two weeks uh, running up to Eurovision, really had Eurovision shows. We had a Eurovision competition on the show. So I really felt like our kind of our contribution this year was really in, in the form of really supporting it from a radio point of view. Um, 
But the performance was brilliant. He was brilliant, so consistent. Everything that you want in a Eurovision entrant looks great, sounds great, delivers really well, delivers under pressure. You know, or, you know, as an artist, he's lovely. And also appears to be, and I'm sure that's the case because I, I can't imagine he's anything other than the sweetest of all the sweeties in Sweetsville. He seems <laughs> so nice. You know what I mean? Like so nice um, and, and um, approachable. And, you know, and just seeing him performing uh, on the Jubilee concert then, it just, you know, I'm, I'm so excited for him and so excited for our prospects really is back in the Eurovision. It feels like we, we've, got a, we've got a chance again. Yeah, I can confirm. What was it? The sweetest sweetie in Sweetsville. I think I can confirm that. <laughs> I, I, I managed to catch up with him in, in Turin earlier in the year. And I can, was he I nice? Can confirm. He was. He was absolutely lovely. Definitely the sweetest sweetie in Sweetsville. I'll take that one. <laughs> Uh, Harry, let's wind back the clock. You'll have to tell me how far we're going back with this one because I want to find out more about your first ever Eurovision memory. I think my Eurovision memories probably, it's hard to remember because I think sometimes we've seen so many clips as we've grown older and we've seen, so some of those really older, um, Mary Hopkins definitely Mm -hmm. I would remember and Dana, but I think the first time that, Oh no! To save all your kisses for me—that was also brilliant, wasn't it? Uh, I don't <laughs> know. There was so many. Yeah, those were the good days. I think I, you know, I'm born in '65, so for me, I had some really good years of of Eurovision, where where some of our great songs uh, were out there. But I think ABBA and then Bucks Fizz—I think those years were really super good, particularly the ABBA years. I mean. That was extraordinary. And, and obviously what they went on to achieve and are still achieving mm. is extraordinary. So I, I, I remember it and it was just up until the year that we were in the Eurovision in 83, to be honest, Eurovision was loved by the nation and nations. It was, you know, I think the nations still love it. I think that, that Britain has an unusual relationship with Eurovision. It kind of loves and hates it all at the same time. But, you know, for um, for many years, it was all that was in our newspapers, all that was on our screens for weeks in advance. And I, I don't think um, one can imagine that, you know, you've got to remember there was no, uh, it was only like three TV channels. So it was a very different world, no social media. It was just newspapers and telly, you know, two or three channels. And so it was it was Eurovision takeover, I think, at that point, you know, when I when I was growing up, it was a huge deal. Take me back to those younger years then. You know, you, you were talking about some of those names who were representing the UK in like the, the early 70s and stuff like that. Tell yeah. us a bit about what it was like to be growing up and seeing these stars on TV taking part in Eurovision, because I think that's what some people, even me at my age, you know, I, I don't fully appreciate the idea that some of the biggest stars in UK music were actually representing the country at Eurovision. And yet when you were growing up, that was actually the case, wasn't it? This would be like Coldplay doing Eurovision. When Cliff Richard did Eurovision, it would be like Robbie Williams doing Eurovision. It's like a really commercial pop artist, very, very successful, huge. And, and, yeah, again, there weren't so many artists back then as there are now. And and because we had Top of the Pops, we were super aware of what everyone looked like. We knew all their records. We bought albums. You know, it was a very different different way of doing music back then. So when Cliff, you know, did uh, Congratulations, it was, it was a huge deal. It was like, wow, you know, this is Cliff Richards doing Eurovision. But it wasn't like 
why is he doing it? There was never any question. Of course he should do it because Eurovision's huge. Exactly. And Cliff took part twice for the UK, a second and a third place result, if I remember rightly. So, you know, it, it, you could be a big star in the UK. And still, and still lose. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say that would be a good result, but maybe in some of those years where people are coming oh, in second, third or fourth, it was probably, maybe you were looked down upon. Do you do you sort of have a, a, a remembrance of that where people who didn't win were sort of looked down upon thinking, well, you should have done better only because the UK were so used to winning and doing so well back in those early days? Well, I think that, first of all, I think there are two two parts to this, the, the answer. And I think the first part is that I think back then there was a real emphasis in all the scripting that, because it was Terry Wogan back then, but all of the scripts really were song heavy. It was less about the artists and more about the song. You know, is this song? And you saw the writers, you know, when when the band came forward that had uh, one song for Europe, they were there with the writers. It was about the writers. Uh, and we were simply fronting. If you were an artist, you were simply fronting the song. But it was very much about the song. So I think that that's the first thing. So in one way, it there was slightly less pressure on the artists. Having said that, when uh, the band that I was in, Sweet Dreams, came sixth in 1983, it was like big shame. You know, six was terrible. Really? Was, you, oh my gosh, yes. It was, you know, the UK, the, the sweet dreams returned to the UK from Munich with their tails between their legs. That was the headline. And because you, know, you came was, sixth. Because we came sixth, yes. <laughs> Which over the years has become like sweet <laughs> dreams are iconic because they did so well. <laughs> Let me tell you, it wasn't the case for many years. It was deep shame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, blimey. Well, we've done some early Eurovision memories. Uh, another difficult one uh, and difficult to pinpoint, maybe. Can you try and pinpoint the moment you fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest? You mentioned some of those names, you know, like Bucks Fizz a couple of years before you, of course. Yeah. Uh, Abba as well back in 74. Is there a moment you can pinpoint and go, looking back, this is the moment when, when Eurovision was yeah. for me? Yeah, I think that because I left school... Uh, at 15 because I've got an August birthday so I left in the June and that year uh so 15 let me just think so 15 would have been Bucks Fizz when I was 15 Bucks Fizz won and they were on top of the pops and I was a dancer on top of the pops so you know them being winners was amazing and then Bardot uh, was a friend were friends of mine uh, Steve and Sally Ann were in Bordeaux and they had been in pantomime with me and then they went off and did Eurovision and we were all so proud of them with one step further, one step closer, one step closer, and I should have been great there. Song, great song, great song. I wouldn't again. I think there was a bit of a stable, a Eurovision stable. It, it, it became, for, for about two or three years, it was a little bit like uh, the Motown thing where they, they, they would kind of breed singers and, and, and train them. And, and that was, you know, the work that we all did back then, trying to get into those bands that would represent the, the UK. Uh, and so it was, it, I think for me, it was really around when I left school because it suddenly became relevant having left school that I was there among it, amongst it all. Uh, in 81, 2 and 3, th those years in th 83 is the year I, I represented. But really from a couple of years before, it, it had become so significant. So this might get us nicely into chatting about 
1983, of course, when you represented the UK. So when you found out that Buck's Fizz were going to represent the UK a couple of years before that in 81, do you remember what your thoughts were? You must have thought, oh, blimey, this is real. This could be possible for me. What were your initial thoughts when you found out that Buck's Fizz were doing it? Yeah, I think that we, I think, you know, it's interesting because we touched on people like Cliff representing Great Britain. And of course, that that was completely unreachable. Though Those people were huge stars. Whereas I think with Buck's Fizz, they were, you know, brought together, put together, uh, you know, as became so much a, a thing, you know, in, in pop music uh, in, in the years that followed. Um, so I, I guess that was more more my kind of where I would have entered into the industries. Like I want someone to notice that I would be good at this and give me an opportunity. And and then, of course, someone did. And, and our band was, I auditioned for our band and it was meant to be a, a duo and they chose Helen and Bobby, the other two members of the band, as the duo. And, and I thought, okay, I didn't get that one. I came so close. And then they said, oh, the trouble is there was this other girl that we really like, but it it would be – maybe we'll just make it a trio. Hey, let's just do that. And so I then got a call back uh, to say that I hadn't not got the job. In fact, I'd got the job, and they changed the band in order to accommodate me, which was really, really wonderful. And, um, gosh, at 17, it was it – was, representing your country was was incredible um and and all that that involved doing all the press all the tellies traveling you know these what meeting terry wogan all of this stuff was huge um you must have thought all your christmas had come at once yeah and i think we're a bit blasé about uh celebrity now but back then people were they they were on your telly they were in your front room and and you didn't get to see them in real life and so it w- was really exciting at the time yeah Go on, you, you've got to tell us a little bit about that experience in 83 then. So, you know, you you thought originally that you weren't in the band and then you found out that you were in the band and then you maybe you've got all these different thoughts going through your head thinking, I didn't get it, I've got it, I'm going to Eurovision, I'm only 17. And then, yeah. and then you get to go. So it, tell us a little bit about 1983 and actually going and representing your country and performing. That must bring back so many memories. I just remember... Before Song for Europe, which was the, the you know the, the program that we had in the UK to choose the song for Eurovision, we practiced every day nine till five for six weeks. Every single eyeball, every finger, <laughs> every hair on our head was choreographed. Um, you know, we we were choreographed to within an inch of our lives, really. But it just meant it taught me a huge amount about the value of rehearsals. I never used to like rehearsals. I think, oh, I just want to just feel it. I want to just, for it to be real, you know. Uh, And then we won, which I think that was up to that point, one of the greatest nights of my life. I remember calling my mum and kept putting the the two pence pieces in the slot of the the, the payphone because we didn't have mobile phones. So it was like, mum, my mum was screaming. My whole family was screaming like, you, you won, you won. And you know, we we got in a in a limousine and went straight to Pool in Dorset to record the video, which was on a speedboat. The next day, so it felt like my entire <laughs> life had kind of just, just gone from a, like, exactly just a working class girl from North London, and suddenly you're in a limo and you know you're meeting stars and you're you you know this of course is 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 not that impressive by today's standards but at that time because we television and music was so different it w- it was a massive deal at 17 back in 1983 
but then that led to going to Munich. I think I was a, probably a little overwhelmed by it all at that point. Um, I just remember being very nervous. And um, even today, when I hear dum, 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 da, dum, 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 <laughs> I instantly need the loo. <laughs> it's it's one of those you're just like okay I need the loo right now um that song that music uh absolutely terrifying it terrifies me the idea that all this pressure is on on was on us to represent the UK you know you, you just feel like I'm gonna let someone down if I if, what about if I go sing out of tune what about if I forget my words what about if I because we had these stools what about if I knock the stool over what about if my you know hair falls off do you know what I mean like anything you're just like ridiculous things that you start all the what ifs what might happen uh but it was really wonderful it was a great opportunity and of course we didn't win and and I was so disappointed I was really disappointed um and I don't mind saying that I think I think that we get very again very blase about oh let's let's be really cool and not act like we're upset but I was devastated I was like we worked so hard for that I think we I mean, had an was, idea you know, yeah, yeah there was nine to five hours in the rehearsal studio and then yeah. you, like you say you come away with sixth place all Many you think would about celebrate that now but looking back at how well the UK did back in those days it's totally understandable why you would have felt like that yeah I mean, we really did feel like we'd let the UK down by only coming sixth um but it was a great experience and there were there were some really great artists there, lovely songs. You know, you're like, okay, this is, I, I have respect for the Eurovision in, in a way that I know a lot of people don't. But I, I think that um, it is its own thing, isn't it? It's its own beast, if you like. It has its own style and its own way. But um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful time to celebrate um, celebrate performance, celebrate life, celebrate unity, celebrate all these countries coming together. There's a lot. There's a lot to like. There's an awful lot to like. And every now and again, a superb song breaks through, and then you go, "Yeah, okay." We, we I don't mind waiting for if, if it produces a song like this every few years, then <laughs> it's well worth it. Yeah, there's so much to celebrate with uh, the Eurovision Song Contest, as we'll probably discuss in the in the rest of this conversation, which is probably a perfect time to move on to. Uh, your favourite Eurovision year. Now, potentially, your favourite Eurovision year is 1983, which I'll, I'll gladly let you have. But I wonder, because you've been involved in so many contests in various yeah. roles, are there any other years that sort of spring out when I ask that question? Yeah, I mean, I've judged the song for Europe with its many different titles um, two or three times judging. I've also been head judge of the jury for the UK and I've also had to read the scores back. You've done it all. You've done all of the, the rules, surely. I, yeah, except <laughs> for writing a song. Maybe that's what I need to do. But yeah, I've done just done an awful lot of things for Eurovision. I have to say, reading back the scores is more, more terrifying than actually representing the UK. Um, <laughs> but I would say the highlight for me was, uh, apart from obviously representing, was the year that I was head judge, which was the year that Conchita won. So 2014 um, we're looking at there in Copenhagen. Thank you for that reminder. Uh, Rise Like a Phoenix. Wow. That song is perfect. It's a perfect song with perfect production, with perfect vocals, which on the night had a perfect set with a perfect singer, with perfect outfit, with perfect voice, with perfect performance. 
there is n- I can't there's nothing that I can criticize about anything about that song or the performance of the singer Let's chat about that a bit more then, because I remember seeing and hearing that song for the first time, and I remember it being performed in the semi-final. And I remember a lot of discussion, especially online on Twitter at the time. People were looking at the song and listening to it, thinking, "Nah, this is this isn't very good. This is rubbish." And then, yet yeah, on the grand final night, it just stormed the entire competition. So, yeah. where were you then? Because I presume you don't actually go out to Copenhagen. Are you back in no. London when you're doing the uh, doing <laughs> the jury job? Let me tell you, James. We are sitting in what is the equivalent of a large cupboard uh, in Elstree. Um, you know, you think, oh, great, I'm going to where they make Strictly Come Dancing and then they, they kind of take you around the back to some kind of glorified porter cabin. And you're, um, yeah, it was not a glamorous environment. And the thing that I remember about judging that night um, amongst the other judges, we weren't allowed to make eye contact. We weren't allowed to speak. We weren't allowed to move our bodies in ways that would show who we were supportive of. So wow. it was Drake, then, isn't it? just... really tense and you have people watching you so you have adjudicators watching the judges to make sure that they abide by the rules uh, which you know is just fabulous if only all of our voting in the UK and the world in other (laughs) spheres was was that stringent honestly it was crazy Um, and so I remember for me anyway Conchita from the get-go I heard the performance um my main memory of it was really on the night, just thinking there's nothing that is going to beat that. It's staggering. So good. So for me, it was an instant, you know, deux points. Um, but the UK didn't agree with me on that. You know, the UK didn't vote, didn't give 12 points to Conchita. They gave 12 points to uh, Poland, who we gave no points to, I think, or something very low. You know, they, they were certainly not our favourite. I was going to say, while you were chatting there, I've just been um, looking up the, the spreadsheets of the votes of the, the jury and the public from 2014. And you were right. So the um, the jury ranked Austria third in 2014. Uh, but then the, the televote also ranked Austria f- uh, third. But then, yeah, combined, like you say, the points were a little bit all over the place. So the, yeah. the televote did give 12 points to Poland. So, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a difference there, isn't there? Yes, there there really is. And um, I remember people saying, you know, how could, you know, Carrie Grant calls herself a vocal coach. Why didn't she vote for Poland? (laughs) Just watch it. I'm not being funny. Just watch it and watch Conchita and do the maths. Like, literally, it's not difficult. I was going to say, I, I can tell you exactly where you rank Poland and you rank Poland last. So there we go. That's yeah. the, uh, that's, I absolutely <laughs> that's for hated you. it. Yes. <laughs> With a vengeance. Yeah. There is so much to love about Eurovision, though. Of course, the songs we don't like, the songs we love, uh, which is probably a good time to turn to 
uh, favorite Eurovision song. And maybe it is going to be Conchita and we can chat about Conchita for another five minutes or so. But what mm. songs spring to mind for you, whether it's from when you were growing up or from more recent memory, uh, when I ask you for your favorite Eurovision song? I think, obviously, Conchita I've really raved about. So that clearly was a, a big highlight for me. But if I go right back into my childhood, I think you know, the same impact was had for ABBA with Waterloo. Just harmonically, the singing was incredible. And of course, that is the ABBA sound that we all know and love. And, and But back then, this was their first offering. So we were just marvelling at how beautiful these voices were. Absolutely beautiful, particularly the women in the group. You know, their their voices together, the way that they're their blend just from a technical point of view, when you when you're talking about people singing in groups or together, groups of singers, uh just the blend of the sound of voices, the the their accents were identical, their blend was identical, but obviously they're singing in harmony, so they're singing different notes, but the sound just matched. Um and there's been nobody that's really captured that sound since. They're, they are still as unique as they were back then. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you hear Waterloo, when you hear the beginning of it, it, it takes you back, doesn't it? To, I mean, for me, obviously it doesn't. But, you know, I've always seen the footage from 1974, of course, in Brighton, in the UK when they won. And you're right. It's one of those songs where I think if people say, oh, Waterloo's my favourite song, sometimes it sounds obvious, but it's obvious for a reason, isn't it? Because it's stood the test of time. It really has. It doesn't date. It still sounds wonderful. And I think we loved we loved the song. We loved them. We loved their delivery. The delivery is absolutely wonderful. But we also loved the fact that there were these two couples. They were just a really interesting group. We were interested back then in in and as we are now, I guess, but just their people's lives, who they are, how, you know, that they're together, and how did they come to be together, and yeah, and then the whole of, the whole drama of them not being together, and then all the songs they did when they weren't together, you know, the winner takes it all, and like, oh my gosh, you know, they're singing their life story here. They were like reality stars before reality stars were a thing, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, <laughs> well, absolutely. These were the people that we we followed, but you know, reality stars back then for us, without being you know, negative about reality shows. If you were in, if you were in the public eye, you had to be good at something. You weren't just famous because you sat in a house for six weeks, uh, which is well and good and fine. They were, they were famous because they were super talented. Absolutely, absolutely. Now then, Carrie, I want to move on to most memorable Eurovision moment. You've had so many Eurovision moments, <laughs> of course, representing oh. the UK, reading out the results being on the jury, being on a song for yeah. Europe and, and all of its different guises. Can you try and pick one of those or maybe something else that you've seen on TV at the contest as your most memorable Eurovision moment? I think there's probably the most memorable Eurovision moment for me was when Riverdance was in the middle of the Eurovision and basically upstaged the entire competition nobody was talking about no one can even remember who won that year probably it was just all about river dance and that that was the the lasting memory from that year and again it's another 
dance troupe that has gone on to be so successful, brilliantly successful, Michael Flatley, and then and has also spawned various other groups out of it. It brought Irish dancing into the public's awareness in a way that had never been there before. So I think river dance is probably one of the biggest uh, memories for me in terms of wow moments at Eurovision. Uh, but just on a personal level, for me, reading back the scores <laughs> was so frightening uh, because you've got headphones on. And you can hear, what you can hear in your headphones is you can hear the audience in the auditorium. You can hear the presenter, but the presenter is about three to four seconds later than when you're hearing it in your headphones. So they speak, you hear it a bit later, which makes you look a little bit silly because you're not saying anything. <laughs> it's and the awkward satellite you, delay, yes, isn't it? <laughs> and then you speak and the... And, and there's a one second delay on your own voice as well. So at some point, the presenter's voice and your voice are over the top of each other. And then you're thinking, if I stop speaking, will I still continue? Because I still feel like I can hear myself. <laughs> um, so that was really very difficult. Um, and also the pressure of what if I get this wrong? What if I actually read out a wrong score that people are just going to, I'll be like hung, drawn and quartered. It will just be terrible. My life will be over. <laughs> so this was 2008, of course, when, when you read out the results. I imagine this was just as not glamorous as when you were on the jury. Was this in a, a TV studio in Elstree again, was it? This was in a massive TV studio at TV Centre back in the day when they had TV Centre. Massive studio with like a little um, studio, like a little backdrop behind me and in front of me and to the sides of me. So it was kind of in a little curtained, tiny little area in the middle of a massive studio <laughs> with one camera um, and I think maybe one or two other people. It was quite lonely. I mean, it was a bit more glamorous than the porter cabins of Elstree, but it was, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You always imagine because, of course, they project on the back screen, you know, some fantastic sites, probably this, you know, London or something is behind you, the, the capital, I would imagine. But um it's it's not that glamorous and it's very scary. I was going to say, people look at Eurovision and think that's the most glamorous thing in the world. And yet sometimes for some of the big jobs, it really isn't, is it, Carrie? It really is not. It's not like being the presenter and wearing some incredible crystal dress. Like have. Yeah, you don't quite get that. Let's move on to uh, maybe one of my favourite questions. My, my two favourite questions are the last two, I'd say, because okay. the first one is how can the UK keep up the momentum from Sam Ryder's incredible result this year. We chatted about Sam a little bit earlier about his second place result with his song Spaceman, but somehow the UK has got to follow that, um, keep up the momentum and, and somehow produce another great result next year. How on earth does it do it, Carrie? I think that's such a good question. And if we knew the answer to it, we would be distilling it and bottling it and making sure we, we poured it out in the right time. But I think there's something about Sam Ryder just releasing the song. I think there is, before even uh, knowing it was going to be a Eurovision song, I think there's something about having really good and current writers, you know, writers that, you know, write for Ed Sheeran and the like, writing for Eurovision. I think that did make a difference. It created a great song with a great artist, with a great voice, who could deliver on the night? Because lots of people have a great voice, but they don't have the experience to deliver a really note-perfect performance under pressure in that way. Uh, and so there's a lot to it. I think people don't don't understand how nerve-wracking it is. But 
you know, Sam Ryder had all of that. So we've got to somehow find another great song with another great singer. And, you know, it felt to me like we were a little bit more circumspect, a little bit cooler about how we released it. There wasn't a big fanfare unless I missed it. I, it just, well, I did miss it clearly because I was playing it <laughs> on the radio show, not even knowing it was the Eurovision song. So I think that lack of fanfare may have just allowed for the, 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 the people that don't like Eurovision at radio to play it and for the UK to get behind it without realising what they were getting behind. We had uh, Dan Shipton on the podcast recently, or just in the last couple of weeks, and he was the effectively the the stage designer and the the performance director of Sam's performance this year. and And performance is a big key, isn't it? You'll know about this, Carrie. Oh that yeah. Of course, you need a great song, and you need somebody who can perform it. But it's that stage presence and the stage performance you need to bring that as well. Otherwise, it doesn't all click, does it? One hundred percent. And you have to remember particularly as a performer, it's the most tempting thing to do is to perform for the people in the room. Not realising there are hundreds of thousands, millions of people watching down the lens. And so it's really the camera that you need to play for. So that really, to me, is the job of really good staging and those choreographers, vocal coaches, those people that understand how telly works. Uh, We get the best performances then because... In a way, the people there on the day, it's great to entertain them, but you know, and entertain them perhaps when you've won, because you get to do the performance again, and who cares by then? It's just a big confetti cannon. But you know, in that moment, you need for all those nations that are sitting there on their sofa on a Saturday night with a takeaway, you need to get their attention. They've got to put their fork down and go, hang on a minute, this is great. And to do that, you have to have stage presence and you have to be connecting with the cameras. And so the best performances always are the people that do that. Um, And I think it has to be said, uh, in terms of staging, the backdrops, the sets, you know, something I really remember about Conchita's performance was the fact that when it got to those last choruses, you had the big money moment of the song where there's a big key change or whatever, and all these flames appeared on the screen behind, and it was just wow and it's those moments or you know back in the day it would have been a a little bit more not quite so sophisticated but you know when when um bucks fizz tore the skirts off the girls or you know those moments that make you go wow you know at the time that was a wow thing you know they they managed to do that and shocking and how great and what great (laughs) choreography um and it was incredibly saucy at the time uh but you know those things are really important. The performances, what you, the staging of it, the set is really important. Uh, but also, more than anything, is the stage presence, is the artists, the artists themselves really connecting to camera so that the people at home get that connection, that they feel it. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully... I'm sure. I was going to say, hopefully, I'm almost certain that the the bosses at the BBC and, of course, they're, they're teaming up with the the record label Tap Music again for next year. So I'm sure they've all got their heads screwed on. They're putting their heads together and we're going to have another great performance. Yeah, whoever was behind it last year, just use the same people. They've clearly yeah. got the formula, formula Rinse right, and repeat. Let's just keep going with exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Speaking about the future, Carrie, it's time for the last question. My favourite of the lot. And uh, it allows you to be a bit hypothetical. The one change you'd like to see at the contest, if you were in charge and you got to change one thing about the contest, anything at all, what do you think it would be? 
Gosh, this is the hardest question to answer. When I looked at the questions <laughs> beforehand, I was like, this question, what would I change? I think maybe just for one year, maybe just for one year, I'd love to have a competition where the artist that performs is the artist that writes the song. I think that would produce something different to what we're used to. Um, and that's, of course, what we had with ABBA. It would be wonderful to have that, just to see if it gave a different feel. You know, when you write your own songs, the, the best performers of, of the song is nine times out of ten, not always, but nine times out of ten is the person that wrote it. You know how that song's meant to feel. And um, occasionally there's great covers, of course, but but <laughs> by and large it's the person that writes the song. So I think that would be an interesting thing to do, but not all the time. I think, you know, it's I think the Eurovision works the way the way it works. What have other people said? What ideas have they come up with? Oh, uh, some people want to change the voting. Some people right. want to shorten the length of the show because it's too long. But what I want to throw at you is a recent rule change. And I want to see if you want to get rid of this recent rule change because you're a performer and vocal coach yourself. That uh, in the last two contests, the some of the backing vocals have been allowed on the backing track. So some of the vocals aren't even live. Would you want to get rid of that and ensure all of the vocals are live on the night? I think it's hard hard enough for the lead vocalist to be live. I think that we all know that in the studio, when you do backing vocals, when you know on the sessions that I've done over the years, you know, if you if you go in as say my husband David and I go in, we do a vocal session, we lay down twenty tracks of us of our voice, which is two of us twenty times. That's forty voices, and then we we're expecting David and I live just to be able to re-deliver that. And of course, it, it doesn't happen. So in a way, it doesn't bother me if there are vocals on tracks. I think that's pretty par the course. I wouldn't want the lead vocals on tracks, but I think in terms of backing vocals, it adds that particularly for Eurovision because so many of the songs that we love are really anthemic. So they demand that that bigger choir sound, that fuller sound. So I think that's. I think that's a really great idea and I'm pleased they've done that. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to be dead against it, but you've proven me wrong. It shows I shouldn't I shouldn't yeah. prejudge, I shouldn't presume. <laughs> <laughs> you've taught me a lesson at least anyway. Uh Carrie, this has been wonderful. I've had Thank a you. I've had a thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable time chatting about all of your Eurovision experiences. So thank you for joining us for a chat. And uh yeah, thanks again. I was just gonna say thanks. I'll keep saying thanks. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're the sweeties of all the sweeties in Sweetsville. That's the one. That's the one. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. This is the Euro Trip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. And with that, brings to a close the final conversation on the contest and me in 2022. Thank you to each and every one of our guests who has joined us on this series. And a special thank you to Carrie there for giving us a brilliant insight into so many different aspects of the Eurovision Song Contest. I think my favourite would be the sheer lack of showbiz and glamour that clearly comes with being on the jury at the Eurovision Song Contest. Because, what was it she said? She's basically in a porter cabin in Elstree, not allowed to get the loot or talk to anyone for hours and hours on end. Honestly, people, I think I said this to Carrie, didn't I? People think Eurovision is so showbiz and so glamorous, and yet there are certain aspects of it where it's just, it's not glamorous whatsoever. It just seems like a, a basic office job. 
Yeah, definitely. And then there was also, wasn't there the nerves she talked about giving the points out at Eurovision, which Carrie, of course, did in 2008, which was a historic and symbolic contest in its own right, of course, because that was the last time that Terry Wogan did the commentary for the BBC. So Carrie involved in what has gone down as a quite historic contest from a BBC in a UK perspective. And no, I'm not going to do my Terry Wogan impression because you'll have to wait a few weeks because, of course, we'll be back <laughs> with... Our regular episodes looking ahead to Eurovision 2023 very soon, and then Terry might make a reappearance. So get your bingo cards ready to cross off Rob's Terry Wogan impression. Uh, quickly as well, we were chatting about rule changes earlier on before we uh, were speaking to Carrie, and it was interesting, her idea of a rule change, that the, the performers would have to be the songwriters. That would be a really interesting change, wouldn't it? It would be intense, though. It'd be really intense. One thing I've heard people talk about previously, which would be really interesting, but I reckon in the in the age of social media, impossible, is if uh, basically you didn't know what country the performer was from. Wouldn't that be good? Like you just you just had 25, 26 songs performed on the night on the grand final. You had no idea which country they were from. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, just the number on the screen instead of the country. Honestly, I would love to see that to see how that would impact things Uh, to be honest i don't think it would really change anything but i'd love to see that happen but i don't think it will no i don't think it will either but thank you so much to carrie for joining us on the final episode of the contest of me for 2022 and we should probably mark your card for what is to come here on the podcast because after today we are going to take a couple of weeks off we plan to be back with you with regular episodes building up to eurovision 2023 from the 19th of october However, James, it is likely that we'll be back with you again before then, I'd have expected. I imagine there's going to be some sort of bonus, emergency, whatever you want to call it, podcast from us when uh, Who City is announced. I imagine that is going to come in the next few weeks or before the end of October. And, and who knows, maybe some other bonus specials to come between now and the end of time. That's just how long we're here for on the Euro trip. Yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in and please do come back with us when we return in a few weeks' time, bonuses aside, because we have had a bit of a rethink about what we're doing on the podcast, at least between now and Christmas, and we've got lots of really special things planned. So when the Euro trip returns, it returns in a slightly different form, but it'll still be the same Euro trip that you know and love. I was dicing with changing the theme tune, James, but I think we're going to keep the same one. Oh my goodness, we need a board meeting about that. I'll I'll (laughs) pencil something into the diary. Uh, But until we are back with a brand new episode, make sure you keep up to date with us online. We are at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We'll be doing loads of fun stuff, loads of interactive stuff to keep your minds whirring away over the next few weeks. And also you can email us, hello at eurotrippodcast.com and make sure you subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars. From me, James, it's good. And from me, Rob, it's goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.